Welcome to the Unconventional Leadership Podcast, a weekly podcast where we dive into the latest leadership news, tips, and strategies. I'm your host, Mike Sipple Jr., co-founder and the CEO of the Talent Magnet Institute, best-selling author, speaker, and podcaster. The Unconventional Leadership Podcast boldly tackles the top-of-mind issues leaders face daily. Through insightful interviews with experts from various industries and backgrounds, we unpack the skills, traits, and mindsets crucial for effective leadership in today's world. Whether you're a seasoned leader seeking to stay ahead of the curve or aspiring to develop the skills and insights to succeed, the Unconventional Leadership Podcast has something for you. Join us each week as we challenge the status quo and explore what it means to be an unconventional leader. Okay, well, welcome everyone uh, to this week's episode. I have the distinct pleasure of being here in the studio with Laura Cantor. Uh, Laura Cantor and I have known each other for the last few years and uh, have been doing some great work together with teams that we're supporting, that she's supporting. Uh, Laura serves in a senior organizational development role, leading the Leadership Academy at St. Elizabeth. Um, she's also a performance consultant and owner of Cantor & Associates. She's become a part of our faculty and facilitation and leadership team here at Talent Magnet. Uh, so, Laura, it's a distinct pleasure to have you here in the, fa- in the studio with us. Thank you. I appreciate you having me today. So, Laura, one of the things that I've most admired about your work is the ability to create connection with the individuals that you're supporting and meeting them where they are to help them on their journey of leadership. Um, So I appreciate the work that you've done there. And I think it would be phenomenal to kind of unpack what you're seeing in the space of psychology um, and human behavior and what you've learned about leading people through change. Um, Is that an okay place to start? It's a great place to start and kind of a a tricky one (laughs) in the same time, just given the last three years and the change that was kind of forced upon everybody, no matter your industry, um, not even talking about business, just as human beings that had to live in the world in the last three years. And now all of a sudden we're hearing new terms or or new philosophies like quiet quitting and all these different things um, that some are pointing to as a result of maybe what we've been through the last three years, but honestly, it maybe came to light or fueled the way people were already thinking and feeling Mm. within their industries, Uh, but COVID just kind of exacerbated it and let everybody throw their hands up and say, okay, (laughs) this is what I actually need and want from either my organization or my boss uh, or just life in general. Yeah, and and Laura, you have, you come with a background. So for everyone that's listening and has not had the opportunity yet to meet Laura Cantor, Laura has a master's degree in sports and exercise psychology. She has a doctorate degree in educational leadership with a certificate in IO psychology. And the general intrigue and interest in human behavior is what leads someone to go through that level of educational experience. And Laura, you just hit on a great point. I was sharing uh, just recently a graph from Gallup that basically shows over the last 22 years, organizations engagement levels have not went up. As much talk as we put out about it, 
right? Uh, we've really not done a great job. I kind of call it in the industrial revolution way of working to help increase engagement scores. Now, there may be organizations out there that are doing a phenomenal job, but the average that Gallup is looking at, and Gallup is the organization that all of us have turned to for engagement scores. And it also shows that unengagement really hasn't dropped all that much. It's staying on fairly level playing field around the 18% range of actively unengaged, engaged at 30%, that may fluctuate to 33 or may drop down to 28. But even with what we've battled in the last few years, we've kind of already weren't doing a great job with engagement. And as you said, maybe this highlighted the opportunity for people to speak up and to share what they were really feeling in the workforce. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that. What elements of what's showing up today that teams are wrestling with and individuals are struggling with, do you feel like was really just an opportunity to speak up and put a highlight on these topics? Yeah, you know, for example, when I started uh, my doctorate uh, in 2013, I was using Gallup looking at teachers, for example, uh, and seeing where they were in terms of their engagement. And when you have... To, to your point, a third of your population within an industry, if not more, who are disengaged or actively disengaged, especially in something like education, where teacher engagement predicts student engagement, and student engagement might predict their actual scores or outcomes of testing. That's huge. And the thing is, teachers are on par and parallel with nurses and doctors. And I think what they have in common is, number one, th this idea of being in a helping profession, Right? People don't become teachers or nurses for the big bucks. They don't do it uh, because it's um, just a job. You know, it really is a calling for them. They really have that meaningful connection with the work they do and their students and patients. Uh, and so where we see that similarity, and these are the most disengaged professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, that's huge because think about the community that it's impacting. Think about what that says in terms of quote-unquote care, um, even for teachers with students in that quality of care. And I think what we're doing, and we saw this in 2013, is we're just asking too much. We're putting on more tasks, more stuff, more boxes to tick on people, whether it was from uh, the state school board, whether it's joint commission in hospitals. Well, you have to tick this box now. And people don't realize that extra added layer of stress. And when you would think, you know, we're in probably the most advanced technology state we've ever been, right? You would think technology would be helpful here. But sadly, we've only gotten busier as our technology has improved. That's right. Um, where, you know, in centuries past, that wasn't the case. Yeah. 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 And it's so interesting to me as we wrestle with all of the implications of chat GPT and AI and people are like, you know, again, the the media spin on it, the news speed uh, spin on it yeah. is people are going to lose opportunities. But as you just referenced, as more technology has been brought our way, there's just basically more we have to manage, more we have to keep up with, more we have to report on, more we have to you know, put in the right types of behaviors in our organization of where it fits and how we use it and how we monitor it and make sure it's not creating bias in our teams and the way we make decisions. It just adds another layer of once yeah. again, complexity that overwhelms the worker. Um, and I think too, you know, humans like to think they're really good at multitasking 
You know, we, we'd love to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, and people even say that in job interviews, I'm awesome at multitasking. The reality is, is we're not, right? The more stuff you keep adding onto your brain, the more you keep adding onto your to-do list yeah. and actively working on it at the same time, you're not actually going to have good results. You're not going to have good quality performance in each of those tasks because our brain just can't do it. Yeah. But that's what we're asking of our workers on top of the managers, the supervisors. They're too busy to truly give that extra level of caring that we need within our industries uh, and create that trust, create that support. And I think COVID has brought us to this point. We're saying, you know what, I need to take a mental health day. People don't laugh at that anymore. They see it as a, wow, you know what, I think I might need to as well. So how do I take advantage then of having a mental health day and actually relaxing and de-stressing myself from whether it's work, life, school, you know, whatever the it is. Well, we recently had a conversation on our podcast about sabbaticals, and I um, literally, the day that you and I are recording this episode, I had a conversation with a group of executives this morning that I facilitated that an individual shared that I basically feel as though I've taken a sabbatical with something that's come up in that individual's life, and it's been really healthy. Our Mm -hmm. team has grown responsibilities have been a good way shifted in ways that I think my team actually valued the shift. Like they appreciated some of the delegation that I've officially done. And we sat in this room and people were like, Hey, maybe I need to take a sabbatical. Like, you know, it it is a really interesting thing because we all want to hold on. There's such a innate um, protection element that we all want to hold on to what we've always done right? It's part of the struggle with leadership of letting go and allowing others to take on responsibilities and to, you know, separate, like, I know it's not going to be done the way I'd always do it, but maybe it'll be done even better than the way I always did it. So share with me as you're working with teams and they're, because you work with teams at all levels of an enterprise and you're helping people in their own lane grow as a human, right? Like I'm sitting here as a learner, I'm listening, I'm engaging, and I'm addressing how does it affect me as the individual and all that comes with that and how an individual has to unpack it. But the other thing we're doing at Talent Magnet is we're facilitating with teams where you've got multiple people who are all going through that same individual filter, as well as how does it impact me as a colleague? How does it impact me and how people view me? How does it impact the people who I have responsibility for? Can you walk a little bit around some of the psychology and how an individual listening to this episode can go, wow, I never thought about it that way. There is a lot of complexity to this thing called team building and personal development. Oh yeah, no, for for sure. If it was easy, you, you wouldn't need people like me, right? If everybody could just come together and form that perfect team and, and work uh, succinctly, there wouldn't be a need for the industry. But guess what? That's human nature. And you know, one thing that has kind of been revealed to us, it's nothing new for psychologists. We all have known this for years, but humans like to be in control of their world. And when we feel out of control, when something we perceive is not within our scope or our realm of controllability, that's where we lash out from a behavioral perspective. So for example, um, thinking about even the last three years, nobody had control over that. That's a circumstance so far out of your control. So what do people do? 
ooh, I get to work from home. I get to now set up my office at home. I get to create this space that's for me. And then the second that's over, wait, you want me back in the office? I'm going to now lash out because you're taking away that thing that I had control over. Um, working from home, it allowed people to maybe set their own schedules a little bit more, have a little bit more of that flexibility. Again, feeling like they actually had some sort of autonomy within their role. Almost this thing we call job crafting. Uh, not every industry allows their, uh, especially frontline employees or associates that are hourly, to job craft. And really, you're kind of missing out if you don't allow a little bit of flexibility to help people connect their skills, their talents, their strengths in a way that can be more helpful to that particular job role or title. And that's what we mean by job crafting within limits, right? Yeah. And certainly for hourly people. Uh, but that's part of it. I mean, that's the most basic form of cognitive behavioral therapy is I feel out of control, therefore, I will do everything and anything to get that control back. Ergo, we act out. So when you hear about this quiet quitting, that's all it is. It's people saying, I'm kind of sick of the world around me telling me what to do in the moment. Why can't I have a say in what I'm doing with my life? Yeah. Uh, and so that's really huge. Humans, we like to feel connected to our work. Again, I mentioned teachers, doctors, nurses, they have a calling. It's not just a, I'm going to go push a few buttons today, get my paycheck and go home. There's plenty of people that can do that and they enjoy that work, but there's plenty of people who really need to feel that connection. And again, when there is disruption within the organization, within a team, and they don't feel like they can be fully uh, applied to their role, um, it's seen as a referendum on, them, on themselves. You know, you didn't like my idea or this didn't go well. Well, now you're saying that I was bad. I was not okay. Mm. And what managers and supervisors miss is, guess what? We have to talk to the individual. We have to understand their individual priorities, motivators, stressors. And if you don't take time to do that, this is where you're going to create chaos in a team and disruption, and not the positive disruption, not just the free flow of ideas, but the backstabbing, he said, she said, and really just erode that basic thing of trust, which is not so basic. So when you talk about that, like in order to do what you just referenced, we have to get better at having individualized conversations yep. and getting to know those around us, understanding their, their strengths and their natural inclinations and their, you know, kind of what I would say, almost like their comfortable behavior. But also as you get to know people, we all know individuals. I have friends and, and colleagues who know me so well that can tell like something's going on with Mike this week, right? The only way you do that is to care enough to really get to know people, right? Yeah. Um, so share with me some of the, some of the uh, resources or because I'm sure you walk into teams and we, I know we support teams that like the individuals in the room really have never been encouraged to take the time to really understand one another. You would say like, how can a team work well that way? Right. Where when you watch a sports team and they're quote unquote gelling, it means that they all know each other's strengths and weaknesses. They know if the opponent's playing us this way, Here's how we play up, right? 
Um, but so few corporate teams um, actually know each other that well, right? So where do you start? Where do you encourage teams to start um, to understand one another more and to, you know, quite honestly, probably understand themselves first? Well, you know, it's that idea of it's not personal, it's just business. First of all, we need to get rid of that from our lexicon. That's an outdated philosophy in any industry. Uh, in fact, it's all about people. You know, we spend more time in a job than we do with our families. That's right. Uh, so it, it's completely unrealistic to think that you're not going to have a personal and emotional connection to whatever it is that your occupation is and what you're doing. Um, the other thing, too, is people don't need to be reminded that you're the boss. We know. Right. We know you have the title. I know what my title is. I know who I report to. So when they come in and act like um that they have to be in charge of everything and everyone, that, that idea of micromanaging, right? That's very important. So as soon as somebody feels, again, that they're being micromanaged in a way, that's when all of a sudden, okay, I'm out of control, and I'm going to yeah. lash out and do what I can to gain the control back. The other issue I see, and it's kind of a fundamental flaw within humans, uh, in positive psychology, um, uh, you know, we look at, kind of this idea of what helps people to thrive, individuals, organizations, communities to thrive. It's the, the other side of the coin, if you will, within psychology, not just looking at the negative and the disease element and the, the bad, uh, but looking at what actually helps people to be successful. And we have something called the negativity bias. And while it was fabulous for us when we were Cro-Magnum men, right, it helped us to survive. It helped us to make our, our DNA pass on to the next generation. That was before our prefrontal cortex was developed, our thinking brain, our rational brain, our decision-making brain. So unfortunately, this primitive brain is still reactionary to the world around us, so much so that we're kind of programmed to really recognize and take in the negative in our surroundings. Right? That's Again, if I didn't know saber-toothed tiger was about to pounce on me or a warring tribe was going to come and raid my village, then there was a good chance I didn't pass on DNA. Right? I don't have to worry about that today. But what are my stressors? What are my negativity triggers for today? The problem is what science and positive psychology has told us, unless if, if I have one negative event, unless I experience it bare minimum three positive events on that same level, if not greater, than that one negative, my brain's going to keep focusing on negativity, negative events. That's when we feel out of control because we're not in that rational brain, that thinking brain. We're still in that primitive uh, amygdala or, or you know, part of our brain that's that fight or flight and seeing everything as a stressful event. So if you had one negative interaction with someone on your team, unless you have a bare minimum of three, if not more, positive events to get you back to neutral, you're never going to build that positive relationship with them. And we see that on teams so many times just because, again, people didn't take one moment to actually get to know who this person is, their motivators, their priorities, their stressors, before we make an assumption based on our own motivator stressors priorities. Yeah. And it changes all of our experiences with that, with the individuals, right? That if we Correct. don't have that trust built 
and you don't know me. So you don't know what you said to me and how it affected a past experience that made me react the way that I did or made me, um, you know, pull back and not be as open in a meeting. Because the last time I was open in a meeting at a company 13 years ago, when asked that question, this is what took place in in that room. And I don't know you, so I don't know how this is going to respond. Right. And for those, for those listening, like think about the rooms you were in yesterday. Think about the rooms you're going to be in over the next three days. Every human in that room comes with a past. And if you don't have those, that positive bank built up with experiences of really understanding someone, you may look at their reaction and go, I'm just going to either move past it. I'm not going to, I don't want to go there, right? Because your own experience says last time I went there with someone, this is what happened. But if you start breaking down these one-on-one conversations and really understand that like Laura knows Mike and every time Laura says this and she notices this reaction in Mike, there's enough trust built that she can say, Hey, can we talk about this? Cause I, I didn't mean what I just said to trigger this act conversation or to bring up this and you're all experiencing it both in personal work and community and the work that we do. Well, and you know, it, it's kind of been integrated in a sense we were young children. I mean, think about the way school is, or even, you know, your parents, you knew when something was right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Ergo, that means good or bad. And even in organizations today, to this day, I, you know, I love Gallup and I love uh, the Mayersons and and this idea of cultivating strengths via character strengths. Um, But one thing that they have even noticed to date is that we are still managing our weaknesses and not actually propelling those strengths to be present. Uh, When StrengthsFinder came out, it was this idea of being a strengths-based organization. So, of course, everybody picked up on that phrasing, that terminology, and, and who would admit that they're not a strengths-based organization, right? Who's going to raise their hand and say, oh, we don't care about that? The problem is when you're being strengths-based, it means you're being deliberate and assessing, identifying, and acknowledging not only the current strengths that exist, but you're doing what Barbara Fredrickson calls broadening and building on strengths. So adding strengths to one's repertoire. And it acts like a continuum. If, if I have strengths more towards the, the top, but I have this weakness at the bottom, by focusing and building and broadening those strengths, I'm kind of mitigating the weakness by bringing it up the continuum. So unfortunately, if we constantly, that negativity bias, we focus on what's constantly going wrong and not focus on what's going right, but more importantly, how is it going right? Yeah. Because I might be able to use some of those strengths where I'm successful to mitigate the weakness and make it not so bad. Right. Absolutely. And then I was, um, Laura, I was listening a few years ago to a Peyton Manning, all time quarterback leader in many capacities. And his comment was around the strengths based leadership of, I know my strengths extremely well. Right. And I've known them since I was a child and I continue to invest in them. But if I don't, know my team strengths and who's on my line and put people in those roles that mitigate my weakness because my opponents are always looking at my weaknesses, right? They want to exploit right. my weakness. So as a leader, when we know our strengths, the the way that you manage, quote unquote, the weaknesses is to go hire people who have incredible strengths in areas that you don't, right? And own yeah. it. Like, don't 
don't, you know, I know my weaknesses and I, you know, individuals will ask like, oh my gosh, you know, the comments get made to certain personalities and individuals around like, wow, you're doing all these great things. The only reason why is because I've got an amazing team that align to where we're going as a vision, right? And we want to hire amazing people around us to fill those gaps to where I can stay focused in my lane, right? Um, but yeah. boy, is it hard. Any 360 we've ever deployed, where do everyone first go? They go to their lowest scores, right? They don't celebrate right. the things that they're doing amazing. Um, you know, they look at flaws. They don't look at strengths. How do you get teams? Because I'm sure when you deploy and you share um, information, let's say you share the via character strengths with a team of 12 people. Um, the natural human behavior is to immediately figure out which bar is the lowest, right? That's um, right. How do you help change that mindset in the room when you know that like, hey, the reason why they're talking over here is because they're comparing their weaknesses. They're not talking about what they're greatest at. Yeah, you know, in, in working with professional athletes and professional teams over the years, that is one thing that they do extremely well that the rest of the population fails at is this okay. idea of team building especially at that elite level. Because like you said, Peyton Manning, he didn't work in a vacuum, right? And if there was somebody on that quote-unquote team who was not uh, connecting well, you, you saw the transfer, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of Vinatieri, for example, who was their kicker for years and years. Um, but obviously there, there was something there that just maybe wasn't gelling and left. Uh, as a Buffalo Bills fan, and I know I cry every year, but... <laughs> Over the years, we used to tease that, um, gosh, between New England and other teams, they used to take all of our best players. Now, Buffalo never knew they were the best players until they went to the other teams, and they just gelled so well with the other teams. I think of Marshawn Lynch, you know, with Seattle. Um, so, again, it's are you even recognizing the talent, number one? Do you yeah. even recognize the strengths and the talent of the people on your team first? Second, do you acknowledge and appreciate then how all those strengths and talent can come together. And the problem I think with leadership is leaders are expected to know everything. The reality is they're not. <laughs> That's just what we tell ourselves as leaders. We tell ourselves that, oh, I have to know everything. So all of a sudden I have all of these uh, different talents, these different skills, these different individuals on my team and if I don't know how to make it work, if I don't know where to actually put them to make it work, what does that say about me? But when in reality, when you think about being an authentic leader or even servant leader, that's one that comes out quite a bit with a lot of the work that I do, you're really a trail guide. You're really just trying to map out the path, but let them still be them. Let them still get their experience in there. It's not about doing everybody's work for them. It's allow, allowing them to be the individual with those skills and talents and strengths that we've talked about, yeah. to be an individual of success for the team. Right? I mean, think about that. You know, if the kicker misses, he was an individual, but that was still part of the team. It shouldn't come down to just a, a field goal at the end of the game. You know what I mean? That shouldn't make or break a game. The rest of the players should have done their jobs as well. Yeah. And, and when in recently, right, the most recent NFL season, um, it's and the good news is this is timeless because any NFL season ends this way. We yep. all see kickers that miss 
right? But yeah. you never, you rarely ever see a coach or a teammate call out said player because this is a team and we train as a team and we develop as a team and we roll as a team. But this gets to a great point. I heard recently a statistic that, um, and we talk about this often, that 94% of individuals say they would be more likely to stay in a company if they were actively invested in. So that's the first statistic, right? <laughs> High correlation. If a company is actively investing in you and feeding into your interests and the things that the strengths that you have inside of you, you're going to naturally be more engaged. The opposite, the statistic that fights this for me, which is exactly what we're talking about here in terms of getting to know people. Um, most the the highest correlation that they found of individuals who leave are spending the least time with the managers who should be investing in them right so there's a very low number of individuals who say i'm exiting and i have a great relationship with the individual i report to and i spend one-on-one -on -one time it was that one-on-one -on -one time correlation back to manager effectiveness we we've not spent enough time getting to know the people on our teams their strengths and abilities, being an effective leader means leaning into that and not just rushing past it. Yeah, you know, and, and you've heard the old phrase, people don't leave organizations or companies, they leave individuals. More specifically, mm -hmm. they leave their immediate supervisor. Uh, so, and, and, and I just read something and I'm, I'm terribly paraphrasing Adam Grant here, organizational psychologist at Wharton School of Business. Um, he said something about, you know, we, we pay people outside the organization more money to come in, to draw them in, and yet we fail or we neglect to then give that same bonus, that same recognition, that same money to our internal associates because we're assuming they're going to be loyal yeah. or we're assuming they can't make a change. Because that's another part of it. If people feel stuck in a role, if they feel um, that I can't quit this job because of and fill in the blank with outside uh, interests, family, you know, kids, things of that nature, uh, that's where you're also going to see the disengagement occur. Uh, but again, if I see people coming in doing the same job as me and making more money, it then leads me to go, well, gosh, here I am loyal to you showing up doing my job every day, but how loyal are you to me? And I think that's what also the pandemic exposed to the younger generation. What boomers and, X and Xers don't get and older millennials, Gen Z, they saw their parents struggle. They haven't seen their parents have it easy. Um, they've seen tuition costs be exorbitant and out of control and how can I even pursue my passions so they're trying to come to this idea of just justice you know equity and justice um, and it's funny because if I think about even the greatest generation I go back to my grandfather's time he could work a quote-unquote nine-to-five job right and still have a roof over the head they still had two cars you know my father didn't want for anything uh, sure, they didn't go to Europe. They didn't, you know, do all that kind of uh, stuff, but they still went to a lake and had vacations that were nearby uh, in the hometown where my parents grew up. So it was a simple life, but you were still able to have that 1950s nostalgia that I think people try to go back for. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not where the world is. That's not where we currently are. So we can't go back. Yeah. And to your point there, 
by putting so much on managers, they don't feel like they have the time to even get to know people. And again, that's the biggest mistake you can take is not genuinely getting to know your individual team members. Yeah. Uh, when you start making assumptions about the way why people behave or act the way they do, that's really more of a reflection on you and maybe your potential insecurities. That's right. Um, the funny thing is, if you think about athletes, especially professional athletes, we talk a lot about confidence with professional athletes. And what a lot of people don't understand, they've done a lot of research around confident people and humility, character strength, and the via character strengths. And people who are genuinely confident and genuinely humble, they know their strengths and weaknesses in proper balance, but they also recognize the strengths and weaknesses in others in proper balance. Yeah. And that's huge. Absolutely. So good. It's so good. I mean, this, we're going to spend, you guys are going to have the opportunity to hear Laura and myself several times, I guarantee you, on the Unconventional Leadership Podcast, because there's so much material here. Um, I'd love to hear from those listening what, what topics here that we've started to unpack that you'd even like to hear more of. Um, Laura, I have a couple uh, rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Um, what is your definition of an unconventional leader? You know, that's tricky because when you, when you think of the definition of somebody who's unconventional or against the norm, um, for me, it's somebody who, like, I'm going to go back to that trail guide scenario. It's somebody who is, I'm going to be here walking along with you. I might have a roadmap, but guess what? There's more than one ways that we can make it to the top of that mountain. Yeah. So it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just different. But how do we take that different and incorporate it into our, our current vision of this organization, our current mission, vision, and values of this organization and what we're trying to accomplish? That's awesome. And what is the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever received? Or one of them? You know, I, I have to go back to one of my first bosses ever. Um, so after I got out of undergrad, I was athletic trainer, physical therapy assistant. I, I wasn't entirely happy with that role. I already knew I wasn't going to stay in that field the rest of my life. I, I got a little burned out before I ever graduated college. Uh, and I worked for an outpatient physical therapy uh, company. Mm -hmm. And my first boss, I'll never forget, his name was Patrick. Fabulous, fabulous guy. And the whole reason why he was fabulous he got to know every single person that worked there individually. Hmm. He knew the housekeeper all the way up to the CEO, knew everything about them, treated everybody the same. And the same in the sense of, I, I see you as a human being and I want to get to know you, yeah. the human being. Hmm. Um, and, and so you never walked away feeling like you didn't matter. And, and he had that very naturally about him, and, and he yeah. still does it to this day. Uh, I've, I've, I've a, luckily have chances to connect and catch up with him, and I know people that work for him to this day. And despite some of his quirks, right, and some of maybe his weaknesses, to what you've already said today, he has people that mitigate those weaknesses on his team. And he genuinely cares about the people on his team and will job craft and bend over backwards to make sure that their needs are met because he doesn't want them to leave. He wants to make sure they're being cared for. And therefore, as you just referenced, people know that 
recognize yeah. that. And here you mentioned it was one of your first bosses, one of your first managers that yeah. had a profound impact that you're talking about so many years later. Um, so but it was so different and unique, you right. know what I mean? From other yeah. the way others leadership have experiences and, and kind of everybody in between. I can honestly say I haven't had very many good bosses over the years, which is sad. We shouldn't mm -hmm. be saying that as people. We should be saying about yeah. how many amazing bosses we had over the years. Yeah. Laura, what is the your favorite tool right now to enhance leadership um, that you're either using personally or that you're using with others? Uh, of course, you know, with positive psychology being my paradigm, you know, within uh, everything that I do in, co in coaching and consulting, uh, I still love my VIA character strengths. So I think, uh, you know, still a third of people can actually name their strengths and know what they do well. Uh, but I have to say what I've done recently is uh, marry this idea of our character strengths and the idea of radical candor by Kim Scott. Uh, former uh, Google executive. Uh, I absolutely love Radical Candor. I think it, it's fantastic. And one of the aspects of it is it's not enough for us to challenge directly, right? I'm sure a lot of us get challenged directly anyway at work, but you have to care personally. And if you care personally and you challenge directly, that's Radical Candor. But again, if I have yet to care about my team and let them know I care about them, it, it, what she calls it's just going to be obnoxious aggression, right? <laughs> Somebody wow. coming at me and telling me this feedback. Um, and that's the other thing is most of us, we're not taught how to give effective feedback. Yeah. And again, it starts from school. It starts from how our parents were as well. Uh, so everybody thinks that just because they're in a leadership role, they're excellent at feedback and communication. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Well, well, we've unpacked some topics that I, I hope to invite you back and hope that you say yes. I encourage our listeners to you know share with Laura and I, where do you want us to go deeper? Um, a few topics that come to my mind, I'd really like to unpack that, that bias component because we're naturally born with bias around protection. As one of our uh, yeah. founding board members and uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Janet Reed, has talked about a few times on our podcast they like, you're naturally born with bias because it's a, a protective uh, structure in your brain as you're born into this mm -hmm. world about what's normal and what's natural. Um, I'd love to unpack more about um, the uh, via character strengths and tying that into radical candor because those two things married together are having profound impact on teams and helping teams see themselves differently and then operate in a more high-performing manner. Um, so, Laura, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me come by and just share a few thoughts. And we look forward to the next conversation. Thank you for listening to the Unconventional Leadership Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and inspiration from today's episode. We invite you to join us on this journey of exploration and discovery as we continue to uncover the unconventional approaches and strategies that are shaping the future of leadership. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Unconventional Leadership Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Being an unconventional leader means embracing new ideas and strategies to drive growth and innovation. So keep pushing the boundaries and challenging the status quo. And we'll see you next time 
on the Unconventional Leadership Podcast.